Welcome to the Cowie Baptist Church podcast. To learn more about Cowie, including in our gathering times, visit us online at cowie.church. Enjoy the message. Love the words of that song, just the thought that if he left the grave behind, so will I, and may we walk uh, in the newness of life. Scripture says that if anyone is in Christ, that he's a new creature, that old things are passed away, and behold, all things become New And so we live in uh, a time that is already not yet, right? That we uh, look to that time when uh, we experience no more suffering and no more pain and no more difficulty. Uh, But until that day, we proclaim the goodness of our great God. We are in the midst of a series called Finding North. We're uh, kind of a part of a series called In the Wild. And we recognize that in the midst of this world, uh, we are in a crazy world. There are things that are happening all around us. There's brokenness that is all around. And in the midst of that wild, sometimes we run into questions. In the midst of that wild, there are things that we see around us that we have a difficult time understanding, that we have a difficult time getting our minds around. Uh, I saw uh, some things from a third grade class of kids, some questions that they had uh, for the Lord. Uh, The first one uh, was this, dear God. I bet it's very hard for you to love all of everybody in the whole world because there's only four people in our family and I can't do it. Some of y'all with kids that are siblings understand that, like for sure, right? Dear God, uh, did you mean for the giraffe to look like that or was it an accident? (laughs) It's a good question. It's a good question. Dear God, how come you didn't invent any new animals lately? We still just have all the old ones. Here's one from a little girl named Charlene, right? How did you know that you were God? It's interesting how kids think of some interesting things. The next one, a little kid says, uh, Dear God, who draws all the lines around the countries? Sometimes we have questions, and sometimes we just have things we want to tell God because maybe a a prayer didn't go the way that we had hoped it would. Maybe we've asked the Lord for something, and uh, the answer that he gave was not the one we're asking for. That was this little little lady. Her name was Joy. She said, Dear God, thank you for the baby brother. What I asked for was a puppy. (laughs) Sometimes it just doesn't work out like we thought. The little boy named Tom said, dear God, when you made the first man, did he work as good as we do now? And we know the answer is much better, right? Much better. And finally, a little boy named Daniel, age eight, wrote this. Dear God, here's a poem. I love you because you give us what we need to live, but I wish you would tell me why you made it so we have to die. And, you know, that question is something that resonates with all of us. Fact is, it's a question that many of us may have asked. Barna did a national survey and was in preparation for a book that Lee Strobel wrote called The Case for Faith. And in this survey, they allowed folks to respond to the one question that they would ask God if they knew he would give them an answer. And by far the number one question that people wanted to ask God is why he allows pain and suffering in this world. 
you know, the reality is that that question is not new. That that question is something that all of us have, have wondered. All of us have uh, had moments where it's been just a, a reality in our life. Epicurus said this and said it very eloquently. He said, either, he said, God either wishes to take away evils and is unable, or he is unable and unwilling, or he is neither willing nor able, or he is both willing and able. And he continued to kind of run those things down and, and try to disprove some things or try to say, you know what, if our God is like this, then why are these things happening? Because the reality is the problem of pain and suffering is tough for us all. And what Epicurus is saying that either God is great, but not good, because if God's great and he's good, then he could do away with all these things. And so do we have a, a mean God who causes all this suffering? The other thought of that is that God is good, but he's not great. Because if he was great, then he would be big enough to stop that. He would be powerful enough to stop that. And so there's this thought that would say, you know, God would like to make a difference, but he's just not able. And for the past few weeks, we've been looking at this reality and this truth that our God is great, that he is creator, that he is sustainer, that he spoke this very world into existence without even breaking a sweat, that he is above all, that he is transcendent, that he is outside of all creation, and yet uh, even in the midst of that transcendence, that he is also imminent, that he is with us in the midst of creation, that he is uh, in the midst of all those things while remaining separate from it, that he is omnipotent, that he is all powerful, that he is omnipresent, that he is present everywhere, that he is omniscient, that he knows all things, that he is uh, benevolent, that he is loving, that he is just. We see that God is a good father, that we've seen all these things. And so it leads us to this problem and it leads us to this uh, thing that people have been wrestling with. And we've uh, seen in the past few weeks that we can see the greatness of our God in creation and that God exists, right? That he uh, has created this world with precise accuracy, with, with intentionality, with, with beautiful perfection that allows life to be sustained. And yet we have this God who exists and a God who scripture reveals is all good. We have a God who is all good, a God who is all knowing, a God who is all powerful and there is evil in the world. And it feels contradictory to say all those things, right? It feels contradictory to say that God is all good, that he's all knowing, that he's all powerful, and that there is evil in the world because we recognize that God could have chosen uh, to create this world without the possibility of evil. We, we know that God has the power to do those things. And, and as we think about that, there's a, a big word that's used to talk about this topic. It's called theodicy, and uh, it's made from some Greek words that basically mean just divine justice. And there's this uh, defense that's made how God's omnipotence, how his uh, greatness, is reconciled with the fact that there is uh, evil in the world while there's a God who is completely good. Now, when we think about this question, usually it's not looking for big words like theodicy or anything else. It comes to us in a place of brokenness. It comes to us uh, from a deep place within us. Many times, we, it's in that time of tremendous loss. It's in that time of tremendous hurt. And, and, the, and the answer in those moments, let me just preface this, is it's not an intellectual answer. It's not one of these things that we come along somebody that's going through devastating loss, and we try to give them some kind of intellectual answer that solves the problem that's there. Because the reality is, is that when it comes 
comes to the personal suffering and pain that we walk through, there will always be a mystery. There will always be things that we don't understand. There will always be things that are there. And in the midst of those things, people need the presence of people who love them, the presence of a God who loves them and is with them, and a willingness for us to mourn with those who mourn. Not with this heart that we would have all the right answers, but that we would have the right heart and a recognition that there are things that we don't have figured out. Right? When people ask that question, why did God not save my mom? Why did he not save my child? Why did something not happen in these moments? Because when we see these tragedies in our personal life, right, they wreck us to the core. We see tragedies in the news. We see condos fall. We see things take place. I can remember well, and all of you that were alive and old enough to remember can remember September 11th of 2001. We remember where we were at when those towers fell. We remember the hurt and the feeling that's inside of us in those moments. We remember the questions that rise to the surface, and the reality is that we're in the midst of a broken world, and that in this world, people have those questions, and they are looking to those of us who have faith to declare it and to be able to give a reason for the hope that is within us. And tragedy gets much more personal. I remember when I was about the age of 10 was really the first time and we'd seen people that were older pass away. And, and, and we see that in the midst of this crazy world that we live in. Sometimes we just refer to those things as life, right? That's from my son who uh, was about an eight-year-old theologian at the time when I was asking him. We had all these crazy things that were happening. And I said, buddy, what do you think? And he said these words. He just said, hmm, life. And so we know it as that. We know these difficult things come to pass. But when I was 10 years old, just a few miles down from here, I can remember my 16-year-old cousin drowning just a few feet from me. And in the midst of those moments as a young child, you look and you have those questions that hit deep in your soul. I had a memorial service for his father just a few weeks back. And in the midst of that, it brought back those memories so vivid. I can remember him screaming at the top of his lungs in Angel Hospital and crying out at the Lord and asking that very question. Where are you? Why, my son? And it's in the midst of those kind of things of brokenness that I know there are people in this room that are walking through. Where is God in that moment? Recently, I've been reading a, a book uh, called A Grace Disguised by Jerry Sitzer. It's a book that really just engages in suffering and loss. It's a very good book. He writes it from uh, just this rawness in his heart. Uh, he writes and answers and engages in some of the difficult dialogue of this question. In an instant, a tragic car accident claimed uh, three generations of his family. He lost his mother, his wife, and his young daughter. And the book is called A Grace Disguised. And in the midst of that, he talks about just the presence of God in the midst of suffering and how God walks with him in the midst of those difficult places. And so as we walk into today, there's a lot at stake in the midst of just this question and this hurt that we experience in the midst of this broken world. And in the midst of this story, as we looked, as we were finding north, we said that we uh, can see that God's word is true, that it is inerrant, that it is infallible, right? And there's so much in it that allows us to see uh, the truth uh, of his great word. And in that, we see that God is good, that he is great, that he is creator. And this book is a story, uh, and it's a story that, that gives us this beautiful picture of creation, the fall, 
and the redemption plan of God. And in the midst of this problem of evil and suffering, in the midst of the difficulties of the questions that we may have, we must look at this problem of evil through the lens of the story of Scripture, the lens of creation, the fall, and the redemption plan of God that we are, uh, we are so beautifully able to see through His Word. So we ask this question, if God is all-powerful and God is all-good, then why did he not create a world without suffering and pain? And I want to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 2. We'll be in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. And as we walk through this, I want to answer that question very simply first, that if God's all-powerful and God is all-good, then why did he not create a world without suffering and pain? And the short answer to that is that he did. If we read in Genesis 2, he created everything good. We even see in the early part of that chapter, uh, we see in verse 5 and 6 that there was a mist that would come from the ground that would, uh, would rise from the earth and would water the whole earth. We see in those passages that there were no storms, there were no difficulties, that, that, uh, that God had created everything uh, beautiful. God had created everything good, and he created man. The Scripture says, and he uh, said that the Lord planted a garden for him, right? Now, wouldn't you like the Lord just to plant your garden for you? Like, isn't that awesome? Like, those of you that are gardeners, like, it's just there. Like, it's done. That'd be awesome, right? And, 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 and if I want to remind you, though, he planted this garden for him. The scripture says that he placed him uh, in this garden to cultivate and keep it. And I want to remind you that work was around long before the flood. Uh, so work was not a result, or flood, the fall. Uh, work was not uh, something that was a result of the fall. Work was around before that, but all of a sudden work got tough because of the fall. You can also notice in there that God uh, gave Adam a job before he gave him a wife. That's just something free y'all can uh, look at in there. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, for you girls that are looking out there, I'm just saying. Um, I can get sidetracked real easy. We've got a long way to go, so I'm going to try to behave. Um, verse 16 and 17, Scripture says this in chapter 2, Then the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Everything is perfect. Uh, eat everything but this. You, you have ruin, rain. You're, you're to cultivate and keep. He's in perfect fellowship with God. And, and we look back at that and we're like, man, I can't believe that we're in this mess. How did we get here? And we kind of point back at Adam and Eve, but the reality is we would have gotten in the same mess too. Like look at a wet paint sign and see if you can walk by without everybody. Like, now, now we know that because of the fall that we are uh, born into this world, right, with a propensity towards sin. We, we understand uh, that, but, but we would have gotten in that same uh, mess. Chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, let's look. Scripture says, The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Uh, and the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will surely die. Now the serpent... Uh, begins to engage in this conversation, right? We see uh, the, the enemy, right, Satan. We see him engaging in the midst of this. And we're going to navigate in the coming weeks this thought of surviving in the wild. And we're going to look at this spiritual battle that we are in and, and this uh, how we walk and survive in the midst of the brokenness of this world. But we see uh, him on the scene. He says, you will not surely die. For God knows the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, verse 5, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree 
tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eye and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband who was with her. Now, so before you guys say, hey, uh, elbow your wife, like you're like, man, we'd still be like, God still be planting our garden for us, right? If we had, if that's the kind of case, right? And understand something, uh, God had told Adam, right? We see him and Adam was with her. Uh, so we don't want to get too quick to point any fingers, but we'll see that's exactly what our tendency is to do. And it's exactly what Adam uh, did. The scripture says, then both of them, excuse me, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. So everything changes in this moment. What would have been an amazing moment that God is walking with them and fellowshipping with them in the garden. In verse eight, we see that there's a different reaction now. Verse eight says, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to the man. Now I want you to understand we have a God who is seeking us that's right, a God who is pursuing us. We see Adam who is hidden in the midst of the garden. We see a God uh, who is pursuing. And the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? Can I remind you, God knew exactly where they were. Like, like it wasn't that the Lord was like, oh, man, I, I know they were just here, right? Where are those naked people that I created? I don't see that. It was like they had on camouflage, maybe. I don't know. And so... I'm sorry. And so God knew where they were, right? And, and what we see in this passage, all of a sudden they begin to play the blame game. We see that all of a sudden Adam, uh, God's asking him, he's like, hey, what in the world is going on? Here's what he says in verse 10. He, he says, where are you? Verse 10, he says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. He'd been naked all along, just didn't know it, right? And, and hid himself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from... It's like, it's like we ask our kids, like when they got chocolate all over their face, we're like, have you been into the cookies over there? And like, like we know already, right? He says, he says, have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And Adam doesn't say, yes, I'm so sorry. He says, hey, the woman, hey, by the way, it's the woman's fault. The woman, and, and no, 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 no. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Lord, you caused all this. Because it's the woman you gave me. That's the reason I'm in this mess. She gave it to me and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman, she plays the blame game too. She said, the serpent, he, he deceived me. And I ate. And James would tell us that we can't even blame the devil, right? That the root of our sin, right? That we have these, these selfish desires. We, we see that, that this blame game doesn't work. In verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. And on your belly, you will go and you will eat all the days of your life. We see the fall. We see the results of the fall. We see it begin in these verses. In verse 15, though, we see uh, the first proclamation of the gospel, the proto evangelion And we see this, this proclamation that in the midst of the brokenness that God is redeeming, right? We see in the scripture that none of this took God by surprise, right? We see in the scripture that Jesus was a lamb slain before the foundation of the world, that God's redemption plan was unfolding. And he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And so we see this, this, this pointing to the cross, and we see that, that there's going to be enmity uh, between them, that there's going to be this battle, right? And we're going to engage in that in the coming weeks, but we see that, that sin has consequences, right? But there's coming a snake crusher. There's coming uh, a redeemer. There's coming one who is going to make all things new. We're going to, there's one that is coming that is going to restore uh, the ability for relationship with us and our uh, creator. But we see in the midst of that that sin has consequences. We, uh, we recognize that all of us are born 
born into the brokenness of this world. Millard Erickson, who wrote a theology book that was uh, part of what I used in seminary, part I know of something Randy uses, and, and uh, just a, a great uh, book. But he says this, all of us begin life with a natural tendency to sin, right? Nobody's up there training your kids in the nursery how to say mine and not share, okay? It's just not happening. We, we don't have to do those kind of things. The Bible tells us that with the fall, the first sin, a radical change took place in the universe. Death came upon humankind. God pronounced a curse on humankind, which is represented by certain specifics. And we're going to look at those uh, in the coming verses. And he said, those are probably merely a sample of the actual effects on creation. So verse 16 to the woman, he says, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. Can I get an amen from you ladies out there that have experienced that? Hey, can, can I just tell you something like, I watched that. If it was up to the men, one per family, promise. And if we YouTube, none, none. All right, that, that's just how it's, it's going to be. Right, he says, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and in pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you, right? There's this emotional and physical pain in childbirth. There's, there's this, uh, this, this improper, right, this strife that we see in the relationship between a husband and wife, and this improper uh, way that, that the roles of the, of the man and the woman will engage, that there's this warped sense of how that will look, and we don't have time uh, to dig into that, but we see uh, in Ephesians 5 that, that in, the, in, in Christ, right, that those roles can be redeemed, right, that in Christ, uh, a man can love his wife like Christ loved the church. A woman can look to her husband uh, in, in that way, right, as the head of a house, right? If, if a man is loving their wife sacrificially as Christ loved the church, there is no woman that has a problem with following that man, right? If in this room, people say, well, hey, you know what? I'm in charge, right? And so there's this, there's this uh, dynamic, right? If guys have to say like, hey, I'm the head of the house. If you ever have to tell your wife that, you're probably not. Like, that's just how it works. But there's this desire, right? This improper desire uh, for the woman in, in, in that system to, to engage differently, right? And to seek that uh, role. And so there's these tainted things in marriage. Verse 17 in to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I've commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat from it all the days of your life. So there's this reality that the ground is cursed. And when sin entered into the world, uh, through Adam and Eve's disobedience, so did storms, hardships, pain, suffering, disease, and parts of our world that we would just call life. The world is broken. The weather is broken. We see all around us the brokenness, right? Tornadoes, disasters, floods, uh, disease, sickness, all these things that we see, right? Our bodies are broken. Like after the fall, like there were not as many perfect heads and they put hair on them. And maybe it happened in reverse, right? Maybe it happened in reverse. Like but probably no ball people before then. I don't know, but, but here's the reality, right? Our bodies are, are broken and they're continually uh, decaying, right? We, we recognize that, that, that though the, the, the outer man, right, is perishing, right? And the inner man is being renewed day by day if we're in Christ. But these bodies are broken, that we face death. And we try to do better. We try to exercise. We try to do all those things. But eventually, it, it, we're going to experience sagging. We're going to experience all those things, right? We're going to... Uh, experience the result of brokenness. This world is broken. Verse 18, both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you and you will eat all 
and, and you will eat the plants of the field. And so in, in the midst of this toil, in the midst of these thorns, all of a sudden work is no fun anymore. God's grace, though, continues to shine through because he says uh, even in, in the midst of this, that in toil and in, in all these, these places, right, there's something about us that we try to find fulfillment and desire uh, or, or fulfillment and satisfaction in our work. We try to find fulfillment and satisfaction in our spouse. We try to find fulfillment and satisfaction in all these things. Remember in Ecclesiastes 1, he he says, vanity, vanity. He said, all is vanity. He said, what use is it? All the toil of our labors under the sun. What is it producing for us? What, what is it going? And what we see in the midst of that is that nothing is going to satisfy us. That we're going to, in the midst of this world, that we will find nothing that will satisfy us except from a relationship with Jesus Christ, except for that restored relationship. He said, by the sweat of your face, verse 19, you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. You're going to experience death. Verse 20, he said, now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And then the Lord said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life, right? They're cast out of the garden. They're experiencing, uh, they will experience death, right? They will, and, and since then, we've been gathering around gravesides. There's, there's funerals that have been taking place, and, and we long for that day that those things are not part of our present reality, right? Paradise is lost. The sense of presence that they were experiencing with God in those moments, the way uh, that they were experiencing his presence was lost. And so here's God, all-powerful and all-knowing. This didn't take him by surprise. So why did he create this way? Why would he allow potential for evil? Erickson says this, God did not create sin, but he merely provided the options necessary for human freedom, options that could result in sin. It is humans who sin, not God. Right? We see Adam and Eve created with the ability to choose, the ability to make a decision, to choose right from wrong. And we see uh, this reality, right, that God desires obedience. One pastor at a, a community Easter event that I was speaking at said that God's love language, right? We hear about uh, Gary Chapman wrote this book called The Five Love Languages, and we see that, you know, maybe our, our spouse's love language is words of affirmation or um, acts of service or all those kind of things. And he made this statement. He said that God's love language is obedience. And he desires that we might walk in obedience to him, in, in love with him. But what we see is the brokenness of this world, right? And because of their choice, because of their willingness to, to go their own way, we see that we live in the midst of a broken world. This world is broken by Sin. So number one, as we look at some things to take away, uh, the first thing I want you to see is that we are born into the midst of the brokenness. Scripture says in Romans 5, uh, 12, that, that as by one man in, sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men for all have sinned. We see that in the midst of this world, we are born into the brokenness of this world, a world where in the midst of the wild, we look out and we see the beauty of God's creation. We see uh, the stars. We look in, we see, and we gaze into all that, but we see the brokenness of this world. And as we look within ourselves, we realize that not not only is this world a mess, but that we are a mess too, right? That we are in the midst of this brokenness and we struggle. We have a propensity toward sin, right? And sometimes we say, hey, why do bad things happen? Well, sometimes because it's stupid stuff we did, 
Like that, that's just, I mean, there's just this reality. Sometimes it's natural consequences, right? I mean, it's just, somebody says, I I don't understand why I got lung cancer. And they smoke for like 40 years, right? I mean, there's, and, and, and I don't mean that in any negative way, but sometimes there's natural consequences to choices that we make. And we see those kind of things flesh out. It doesn't make the suffering any easier. God could have created, uh, you know, in a way that, that it wasn't possible for people to get lung cancer. He could have not allowed for uh, the brokenness of those things to go in. And so some of those things are a tension in our lives that we struggle with, right? There's this mystery that we, uh, that we look at and that we wrestle with because we experience that hurt. And even in situations where somebody may have uh, contributed to things that have impacted their life, their family suffers and other people suffer because of those consequences, right? Sometimes we suffer because of sinful choices other people make. They're tangible things that we can see in life, drunk drivers hit somebody. We see all those kind of things, right? And and then sometimes it's just hard for us to trace, right? It's not a direct result of our sin. Sometimes we see just the the midst of this world that's broken, right? John chapter 9, we we read of this man who was born blind, and the disciples said, why was this man uh, born blind? He said, was it something he had done, or was it something his parents had done? Did he sin, or was it uh, the sin of his parents? And notice this man Uh, was born that way, right? And they're asking, hey, was it something he did? Was it something his parents did? And Jesus said neither of those things. He said that this man was born this way so that the works of God might be manifested in his life. And we wrestle with the tension of, of how all these things fit together. But what we can see is that we are born into the midst of this brokenness. But number two, God is at work in the midst of brokenness, choosing to be broken for us. So as we try to wrestle with this question, we see that in the redemption plan of God, we have a God that entered in to the suffering of this world. And the most tragic event of history is the very event that we look back on as the greatest thing, the greatest moment in history. Jesus is on the cross Can you imagine the disciples in those moments, the darkest moment that they could have ever imagined? But glory be to God that it is the greatest moment we look at in our history. God, the creator, uh, sustainer of all life, chose to come down from heaven, lived a perfect life, died a horrible death in our place, and came back from the grave, right? Was risen from the grave to prove that what we are experiencing now, that the evil reality of this world, that it is not the end, that it is not the only reality, that our short time here, you know, the Apostle Paul said that, that what we experience here, right, the momentary light affliction, and we think about the suffering of people in this world, and there is no way that in our minds we can reconcile all of those things, and we see somebody suffer for many years with cancer, or we see people walk through difficult things, but, but the Apostle Paul wrote and said this momentary light affliction, he said that, it, that it's small, that it pales in comparison to the glory uh, that is to be revealed, to the glory uh, that, is, that is being uh, revealed to us in Christ, right? This momentary light affliction is producing, Scripture says, a far exceeding weight of glory in the eternal. And he says, therefore, though the outward man is perishing, the inner man is being renewed day by day. See, God through the, cur- through the cross has reversed the curse, and he has taken the wrath of God in our place. The question that many times we ask is, why do bad, ha- bad things happen to what kind of people? Good people. That's our question, right? But what we find in reality, in the scripture, is that there are no good people, that the only truly innocent sufferer was Jesus Christ. The Bible says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that we have uh, all gone our own way. Jesus, the only innocent sufferer, he lived in a life entirely free from sin, entirely free 
from rebellion and he should have been exempt from the curse of death. But when he got to the end of his life, instead of being rewarded in that way, now there was great reward, right? The scripture says for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and now is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, right? The work is done to tell us that it is finished, right? But we see that Jesus, instead of being rewarded in that moment, Philippians 2.8 says that he humbled himself and was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The curse was reversed and a way was made for you and me to be in relationship with our creator. Uh, we uh, can experience, right, the, the, the glories of the garden, right? And, and there's going to be a, a redemption, right? There's, there's, we're in, the, in this world that is going to be uh, fully redeemed, right? And when we see this picture, right? Our sin debt is paid on the cross. Jesus took all of our sin and all of our shame. Scripture says that he became sin for us and he reconciled reconciled relationship to God. He took on all of our sin, all of our shame, and we live now in the midst of this fallen world. Romans 8 says that, that all creation groans and longs to, to be set free from this corruption that is around us. But thanks be to God, glory be to him, that the brokenness that we live in, the, the reality that we see, the hurt that we experience, it is not the end. The cross stands as the centerpiece of history, and it declares the love of God, right? Scripture says that, that while we were yet sinners, that God demonstrated his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And if you ever wonder, right, does God love us? Does God love you? I encourage you not to look into the presence of your momentary circumstances, because we are looking through the eternal lens uh, of the Scripture, and we look and know uh, that when we look to the cross, we can see God has already proven his love for us. He didn't stay dead either, right? He, he died on that cruel cross, and on the third day, he rose from the grave. And in that, he, he gives us hope, right? He allows us to see that through the resurrection that we've been born again into a living hope, right? That we have hope. Death has no hold on us. Death is not the victor. And what we see now, thanks be to God, is not all we get. It's not all that there is. Clay Jones wrote a book called Why Does God Allow Evil? And he says this statement. He said, Scripture and tradition habitually put the joys of heaven into the scale against the sufferings of the earth. The Apostle Paul did that in Romans 8, 18. He said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We may not have an answer to the whys of much of the suffering that we may go through, but the greatest evil of, of history, right, the greatest evil of all time, Jesus dying on the cross, we can understand what God accomplished through it, that he made a way where there is no way. Jesus said, in my father's house are many mansions. He said, if it were not so, I would have told you. But he said, I go to prepare a place for you. And he went to Calvary's cross and he made a place for you and I. We can embrace this fact and know that God is all good, that God is all knowing, that God is all powerful. And yet there is still evil in the world. And we can know that in the midst of that, we look to the cross and we can see that God can work in the midst of the brokenness. And he can bring good out of bad. We long for a time that we don't hurt. We long for a time that there's no suffering. But we also see that God uses suffering and pain in our lives to work in incredible ways. Romans 8, 28 says this, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many Brethren, Randy Alcorn wrote a book called If God is Good, and he tells this story. He said there was one time when his mother was baking a cake, and he was a kid. He said, she laid out all the ingredients for the cake, and I started sampling them one by one. 
I don't know if any of y'all have ever done that, but there's baking soda and baking powder and vanilla extract. There's a raw egg, and there's even the chocolate that's bittersweet, that nasty stuff that doesn't taste very good. And so he says, I'm tasting these individual components, and almost all of them don't taste good. But somehow the master chef, my mom, we've experienced this, works them all together. She bakes the cake, and it turns out delicious. He says this, I think Romans 8.28 similarly is not saying every individual thing is good. By itself, it's not. But he is saying that he can work all things together for good to produce a final product that is right and good. And one day in eternity, we will thank him for it. And we will say, I'm convinced of it. We will say, Lord, thank you for having wisdom to permit all of these things that I didn't like in order to conform me to the image of your son. That's what Romans 8.29 says, right? That, that he is working to conform us to the image of his son, to use me, to prepare me more for heaven. See, it's not just that God has prepared us a place, heaven. God is preparing us for that place. And God uses difficulties to do that. Douglas Gruthus, who was an apologetics uh, writer, said this, the fall, while based on human rebellion against a holy God, opens up the possibilities for virtue not possible otherwise. See, God is working all things together for good. And in his providence and in his infinite wisdom, we can trust his hand and we can trust his heart in the midst of a broken world. Lee Strobel says, suffering is not good, but God can use it to accomplish good. And finally, in closing, I want to remind you that God is with us in the brokenness. Sitzer says this in his book, A Grace Disguised. He said, I found comfort knowing that the sovereign God who is in control of everything is the same God who has experienced the pain I live with every day. No matter how deep the pit into which I descend, I keep finding God there. He is not aloof from my suffering, but draws near to me when I suffer. He is vulnerable to pain, quick to shed tears, and acquainted with grief. He is a suffering sovereign who feels the sorrow of the world. God is all-powerful. God is in control, and we find ourselves in the midst of his redemption story, and he is with us in our suffering. And so we ask that question, where is God in the midst of the storm? He shows up in disaster relief teams. He shows up in people who come alongside in love. He shows up with warm meals from Sunday school classes. He shows up with those loving in the midst. And here's the truth. Those who have redeemed by the cross, those who have been redeemed uh, by God in the work of the cross are to respond different to the sufferings of this world. It we're to have a 50-20 response. We were talking uh, about a song in the midst of the office, and it was very quickly one of the uh, staff members said, hey, uh, Genesis 50-20, right? We know that uh, there's this, this response in there, and we see this in the story of Joseph. He said, you intended this to harm me, but God meant it for good, for the saving of many lives. God uses his people to be hands and feet, his hands and feet in the midst of this broken world to declare hope. CS, uh, excuse me, Dr. Lee Strobel quotes Dr. Peter John Kreeft in his uh, book, The Case for Faith, and he says this uh, about him. He said he gestured toward the hallway, and he said, on my door there is a cartoon of two turtles. One says, sometimes I'd like to ask God why he allows poverty, famine, and injustice when he could do something about it. The other turtle says, I'm afraid God might ask me the same questions. C.S. Lewis said this, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. Pain is his megaphone to arouse a deaf world. We see God's people walking through the most difficult times in their life. And when we see them glorify God, it is incredible to see how God 
uses that. Many of us have been following uh, Kevin and Jenny Pitts, and we prayed a few weeks back for them as they found out that their uh, baby that is uh, in the womb uh, was experiencing heart issues. And um, I want to read just a post that Jenny and Kevin wrote. And she said this. She said, we were preparing for our journey as parents of a little heart warrior, and we got another call, the call no one ever wants to get. The genetic test came back, and your son has trisomy 13. I was making breakfast for the girls, and it felt like I couldn't stand up anymore. My breathing was shallow, and I could not say or do anything. The doctor then asked if I knew what that entailed and proceeded to tell me that it is considered incompatible with life. Your son at best will live for a few weeks. I listened to what he was saying and then waited to wake up from the worst nightmare I'd ever experienced. I gave the girls their breakfast, then stepped outside and just crumbled. This could not be happening. Why is this happening? How could I ever tell the girls this isn't how it was supposed to go? Feelings, thoughts, emotions, they were all over the place. I was a mess, and I didn't even know how to put one foot in front of the other. I can't do this. I'm incapable of handling this. Finding out the news about his heart was my threshold, but this, I can't do this. But Christ in me, his strength in me is getting me through. Another set of circumstances is not getting me through. A different diagnosis is not getting me through. It is Christ. God is so good, and he is revealing himself to us in ways we could never have imagined. He is teaching us, growing us, and stretching us in ways we never would have asked for. But this I know, friends. I know he has not left us. He has not abandoned us. He has not given us this sweet boy by mistake. Our son is not a disappointment. He disappointment to us. He is a gift, and we will cherish him with everything we have. We will love him and celebrate him and take whatever time the Lord gives us with him. We will surrender our will to his. Your plans, Lord, not mine. Your will, not mine. Your timing, not mine. We serve a big God who is capable of more than we could ever imagine, and we fully believe that God could heal our son, that he could seal our son. He could perform a miracle, and our son would be well. We trust him. We trust that he is working all of this out for our good and for his glory. As I feel our son moving inside of me, I feel the Lord comforting me, and it is a sweetness I can't explain, one that I've never fully experienced until now. He is wrapping us up in his arms, saying, I've got you. I'm with you. I'm for you. I'm not putting one foot in front of the other. The Lord is doing that. Without him, I would crumble and not recover. Oh, how we pray to be used for his glory, to bring his kingdom here so that others may see what a good and faithful God he is. And she says, this will not be a story of despair and defeat. It will be one of victory, victory in Jesus. We covered your prayers for a miracle for our boy. We decided to name him Caleb, named by his daddy, which means wholehearted, strong, and brave. And that is what he will be, whether in our arms or the Lord's, that is what he will be. If I could have read that, that was kind of the whole sermon, right? I could have already been at lunch. We walk through the midst of this broken world, and there are things that we don't understand. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. He said, in this world, you will face tribulation. He said, you can be of good courage. You can take heart because I have overcome the world. We have an overcoming Savior. And in the midst of the brokenness, as God's people walk with faith. See, our response to the brokenness of this world is simply to trust 
in a way, to trust in a God who is good, in a God who is loving, in a God who works all things together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose, that he is working to conform us to the image of his son. And in the midst of that, we look back at our lives, and I look at our lives, and I look at a car accident that my wife and I talk about, and she broke her back and you know, messed her up in a lot of different ways. And in the midst of that, we look back at the difficulty of that moment and we say, you know what, we don't want to go through that again, but there's no way that we would trade it for what God has done with that in our lives. We look at her mother who had cancer and walked through uh, just the most difficult thing that I'd seen someone walk through. And as she walked through that, she walked with faith and grace. And she walked with that in a way that, that just honored Jesus, and it was a way that cried out to me and allowed me to see faith in a way that I'd never seen before. We look at the brokenness of this world and how God works in the midst of it, and we declare, right, it is well. We declare we have an overcoming Savior, and we do not lose heart. We recognize that in the midst of this broken world, this momentary light affliction, that in comparison to the eternity and to all that is kept in heaven for us, that it is momentary and that it is light and that it is working a far exceeding weight of good, and we trust God, therefore, we do not lose heart. Church, don't lose heart. Live for the glory of his name. Stand on Romans 8, 28. Say, I don't understand everything. It's okay to not understand everything. It's okay to not have all the answers. It's okay that I don't have all the answers. It's okay that you don't have all the answers. But I want to tell you, some of it remains a mystery. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to God. Some of this will remain a mystery. But the greatest mystery to me is that God would love me and that he would send his son to a cross for me, that he would die in my place and that he would allow a sinful, broken person like me to be restored into fellowship with a holy God, which I deserve none of. And we see the beauty of the cross in the midst of the broken world. And we declare that God is good and that God is great and that God is working. I want to invite you just to bow your head and close your eyes for a moment. We're going to worship the Lord together. If you have never trusted him uh, today, he does not promise that we will not experience the difficulties of this world. I want to tell you that this life is uh, never, if, if this life is all we have to hope for, then we are to be uh, most pitied. But, but we have uh, something way beyond these life. We have been born again if we are in Christ into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the death. We have an inheritance that is kept in heaven for us that is reserved. We look at the momentary uh, difficulties of this life and we have to keep our eyes fixed on the glory that awaits us, on the, the heaven uh, that is promised and on the work uh, that God has for us in between the time uh, of, of this life and the time that we will be forever in his presence. And so may we fix our eyes on Jesus. I'm going to pray for us. If you've never trusted Jesus, we would invite you uh, just to come and surrender to him, uh, just to, to declare that there's nothing good in you, that, that because of your sin, you're separated from a holy God, but recognizing that through the cross of Christ that he has paid the punishment for your sin and for mine, and that through our relationship with him, we can be restored, that we can be forgiven for our sin, and we can be made right with a holy God, not because we're good, but because Jesus was good. If we can pray for you, if we can come alongside you, we invite you to come and pray. We'd love to do that. But we declare, God, you are good and you are great. Father, I pray, God, that you would help us in the midst of the brokenness of this world, God, to, to remember that we have an overcoming Savior. Lord, we trust you in the midst of the difficult things that we walk through, Lord. And we, uh, God, just, God, we give our lives to you, Lord. And we pray, God, that you would use us for the glory of your name. God, we know you use healings. God, we know you use, uh, God, you, you can do all things, Lord. You are great.
And so, Lord, we trust you in the midst of every situation that's represented in this room, God, that you are working for good, Lord, that you are for us. And, God, there's a day coming that we will suffer no more and that all things will be made new. God, we thank you for who you are. We ask for your blessing in Jesus' name. Will you stand with me as we worship?